0: Hey, creative cutie. It's Lauren LaGrasso here, and you're listening to the best of Unleash Your Inner Creative. And today you're going to hear from an amazing guest. His name is Dr. Dominic Sportelli. He is probably the truest multi-hyphenate I've ever had on the show. He's a psychiatrist, a podcast host, a musician, an actor, a TV personality. He does it all. And beyond that, he's got some really great tips for how to build resilience He got over 100 rejection letters from medical school and kept going, had to apply three different times. I think it was three years in a row. Really amazing story, plus great tips on medication, on anxiety, depression, familial pressures to not talk about it, all that good stuff. It's a great conversation, and I know you'll love it. And I want to give you a little update on my break. This weekend, I went to the ocean, and I let myself just sit by the ocean and... Do nothing. And it felt great. Another thing I've been doing is the morning pages. I know I promised Julia Cameron, author of The Artist's Way, when I had her on the podcast earlier this year, that I would do the morning pages every day. And I'm sorry, Julia, I'm pretty sure you're not listening. But if you are, I didn't do that until last week. And from listening, you've probably known I've been in a little bit of a funk, maybe even a depression. I'm not a hundred percent sure. For the past couple months, this past week, I feel like the cloud that has been hanging over me and the brick that has been sitting in my chest got lifted out and the sun is starting to shine through the clouds. And I can't really attribute it to anything else other than I've been praying a lot. Praying really helps. Um, I just say my Catholic prayers and this prayer called the prayer of Jabez and like the meditation of it really helps and just kind of reconnects me to God and myself and waking up in the morning. And then I do my morning pages and it has made a massive, massive difference in my life. If you're in a funk right now and you're feeling down, try your hand at the morning pages again. Just commit to doing it for a week and see what happens. I'm sure I'll do the thing where I start feeling better and then I fall out of it for a day and then I fall out of it for a couple days and then a week and then I come back to it. But I'm really going to do my best to stick with this long term because the improvement I've seen in myself is so vast that I don't want to risk going off of it. (laughs) I'm also finding ideas are coming to me much more easily. Yeah, it does everything she says it's going to do. So those are my updates. Oh, and I wanted to let you know one more quick thing. I am doing a live show at Urban Press Winery in Burbank on Wednesday, June 1st at 8 p.m. And you can get tickets at the link in my bio or in the show notes. Without further delay, here is the very talented and handsome Dr. Dominic Sportelli. Well, actually, I'm going to do a little intro and then you'll hear him, but it'll be there soon enough. All right. Hope you're doing well this Mental Health Awareness Month. Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm a People's Choice Podcast Award-nominated host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, gain awareness around mental health and spirituality, and own your right to have a dream and take up space. Have you ever thought about therapy? What about medication? Could you need it? Would you even know where to start? I don't know if you know this, but May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So this month on the show, you're going to hear topics and guests that all center around mental health, which, as you know, is one of my favorite things to talk about. Today, you'll hear from a psychiatrist and a true multi-hyphenate creative. He pulls from his own experience with depression and anxiety to talk about healing, why medication is not a solution, but rather a starting point. And he even shares some creative and totally unconventional ways to land your dream job. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a quick favor. If you love the show and it's helped you, please consider leaving it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps bring the show visibility, push it up the charts and connect with more creatives. Plus I read every single one and they mean so much to me. Also consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren Legrasso and I will repost to share my gratitude. One final thing, in light of Mental Health Awareness Month, I want to remind you that my single, Therapy, comes out this Friday, May 7th. If you've ever tried to fix something or someone instead of working on yourself, if you've been in a toxic pattern or relationship, or if you're just a human struggling to learn to love yourself, then this song is for you. Pre-save it at the link in the show notes or in my Instagram bio. Okay, now to the guest. Dr. Dominic Spertelli is a board-certified adult and child psychiatrist and well-known media expert in behavioral health. Aside from having his own medical practice and making TV appearances on shows like The Doctors on CBS, he also hosts his own amazing podcast called Psych Unfiltered. And if that wasn't enough, Dr. Dom is also an actor, producer, and brilliant musician. He seriously shreds on a guitar. You got to check it out on his Instagram. What makes Dr. D even more impressive is that part of what inspired him to become a psychiatrist in the first place is because he went through mental health issues for practically his entire childhood. Even getting into medical school was not an easy road for him. In fact, he tried and failed many times. He was told by many people he couldn't do it, including his high school guidance counselor that told him he was, quote, not college material. Well, thank God he didn't listen because he did all they said he couldn't and much more. If you want tools to gain resilience and persistence, even when the world tells you no, or if you're struggling to understand the complex world of mental health, like what's the difference between a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and social worker, and how does it pertain to you? Or if you just want to learn how to balance many different creative outlets, then this episode is perfect for you. Now here he is, Dr. Dominic Spertelli. So, Dr. D, I've been following your work for a while now. I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, You are, like I was saying right before we recorded, the truest multi-hyphenate I've ever had on this show. And so welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative.
1: Oh, my God. Thanks so much for having me. I love it. I'm so excited to be here. And do you know, wait, is this bad? This is the first time I've ever heard the term multi-hyphenate. What does that mean? I feel so horrible. What does that mean?
0: It means you do a lot of different things all at once, all under the roof of one person. I love it. Yeah. You're the truest sense of that.
1: Oh, you know, so, and I can't wait to chat deep about this stuff, but, but isn't everybody though, isn't everybody a multi And I think, I think we label ourselves and we try to label ourselves as one thing, right? Because that's what our ego tells us to do, right? Like the perfect husband, the perfect doctor, the perfect father, whatever it may be, but we're-
0: That's how I think of myself. Yeah,
1: we're all Perfect. But uh, but we all, you know, we have to look at the, the hyphenated parts of us. We have to look at these, all these parts. And I think that's what makes us whole. And that's, that's what makes us alive.
0: I totally agree. I think that a lot of times society or whatever, you know, maybe it's our parental unit. Maybe it's like the town we came from. Maybe it's just life in general. Like people want to put us in boxes. Yeah. It's easier, I'm sure you know, you know, from your line of work to categorize for the brain to be like, mm-hmm. well, this person does that and just keep it moving but it's just, it's not true. It's not how humans actually work. No. Uh, So it's good to see somebody who walks the walk and talks the talk. But I want to backtrack because I've heard you talk on a couple different podcasts and something I brought up to you when we were first talking about you coming on the show is Italian culture and Mm -hmm. how weird it is in regard to mental health. And I know you'd spoken about how you had anxiety growing up and kind of like didn't have any tools to deal with it. So I'm curious how mental health was viewed or dealt with in your house as a kid.
1: So my dad is first generation. He came to this country when he was 17 or 18. My father learned how to speak English in the United States Army. Is that incredible?
0: Wow. So,
1: so he came to this country when he was that age, and, and uh, he grew up in a very strict Southern Italian culture. And honest to God, I mean, mental health wasn't even a thought. You know, it wasn't even a thought. There was no such thing as depression or anxiety or any of these things. So, so I was raised in a household that didn't even acknowledge any of that. It was very, very, very hard for me that when I was experiencing anxiety and I had severe anxiety as a child. And and when I was in my late adolescence, I went through some significant depression. My automatic thought was there's something very wrong with me Mm. because this isn't right. What is this? What is this? Like I've never heard of this before. My parents certainly wouldn't understand. I I don't understand it. It was never talked about. So I think it made it a thousand times harder, right? Because it was just this thing that I didn't talk about. I kept it quiet. And then when I did finally approach my family, it was like, um, I don't know. What do we do now? We went to the family doctor, you know? <laughs> we went to like right. the local Italian family doctor, right? And he's like, I don't know. He's depressed.
0: We know a guy. <laughs>
1: and, we, <laughs> and my family doctor, you know what he said to me? Yeah. This, is, this is the best part. I don't know if this made it worse. My family doctor's like, what are you anxious about? You're not paying any bills. What, what's wrong with you? Of course, he said that. <laughs> that's what he said to me as a kid, you're not paying any bills. What are you anxious about? And of course, now with my psychiatric training and you know, my background in behavioral health, I know that's probably the worst thing to say to somebody because, because it makes you feel very misunderstood and invalidated and, and <laughs> even worse. Not his fault. He was a family doc. You know, he's dealing with coughs and colds. You know? But yeah, it was, it was really, really hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, I resonate with so much of what you just said. Growing up, I definitely had anxiety too. I was like constantly afraid I was going to choke. Like I was always afraid of choking. And I didn't know, like until I did therapy when I was 22, I didn't realize like, oh, that's what was going on. Mm -hmm. Like it's not normal for an eight-year-old to have this chronic fear of choking. And I remember when I was 15, I went to my mom and I was like, mom, I think I need to go to therapy. And she's like, what? No, do you think so? I don't know. And I'm like, okay. So I didn't end up going until I was 22. And I just think, you know, the thing that you said about secrecy, it's such a, a common thread in, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think many cultures, but certainly like Mediterranean cultures. And so I'm wondering how you went from that kind of upbringing, where you know, to your parents' credit, they at least brought you to the family doctor. That was good. But from that to going into psychiatry, when it's viewed in such a fearful, secret, shame-based way within our culture.
1: Yeah, and it was it was a process, Lauren. It was it it was a process for me. So because of that culture, and because of what I experienced growing up. When I went to medical school, I did not want to be a psychiatrist. I wanted nothing to do with behavioral health. Mm. Now get this, when I told my parents, my father specifically, that I was going into psychiatry, do do you know what his response was? What? He said, but you went to medical school. I was like, whoa! All right, talk about I was like, oh my God. I just, right? So that's how much he didn't understand, yeah. right? That psychiatry is a subspecialty of medicine, right? He's like, well, what do you mean? He went to medical school. I don't understand. So when I first started, briefly, the quick story is I went to medical school and I was focused on medical specialties, specific medical specialties like internal medicine and family medicine and emergency medicine and anesthesia and all of these things. And You know, surgical procedures that I really enjoyed. I loved it in medical school. And because of my personal push away from psychiatry and behavioral health, I was still running from this. I was still running. I was like, not accepting any of this. I'm like, that's my past. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to face this. And in my head, I had my dad, psychiatry. You're not a real doctor. What do you, you know, you're not, what are you doing? Talking to people, right? Giving hugs. What are you doing? So, so
0: yes, that's what we do. That's yes,
1: it. yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just like get over it with a kick in the pants. That's the Italian way. So I went into family medicine after medical school and I was training in family medicine. And this is when it hit me. It was like a, a smack in a cold water across the face at the same time. And this is what happened to me. I was in family medicine and I was seeing patients in the clinic every day and coughs, colds, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, aches and pains, the typical family medicine stuff. But what happened was is when people came into my office and they started telling me that they were anxious and they were having panic attacks and they were depressed and they couldn't get out of bed or they felt suicidal and life's not worth living. I would perk up because I knew exactly what they were saying to me. It made perfect sense. Now, I would go out and I would talk to my preceptors and my colleagues and my peers. What's a
0: preceptor?
1: Oh, so a preceptor is like your, your doctor boss, like above you. Dr. Boss. Dr. Boss. So (laughs) when you're in training, you have a preceptor, you have somebody that's like a board certified doc that you have to run the cases by and talk to them. So what I noticed was, is as I'm talking to them and I'm saying, oh, you know, this is a case of anxiety. They're having panic attacks. Everybody rolled their eyes. And I was like, well, wait a second. No, this is real. Even doctors, even medical doctors were like, oh, it's just a panic attack, you know, give them some Xanax, they'll be, all right, okay, go see your next patient. And again, not disparaging medical docs. I'm just saying it's that stigma that we're just taught, that it's not a real thing, right? If you can't cut it out, if you can't see it on an x-ray, all right, move on, okay? It's just a panic attack. In the meantime, panic attacks are horrifying. So that's when I was like, oh my God, I'm actually interested in this. I want to listen to these people. And then I said, That's it. I have to be a psychiatrist. I, I just got to do it. This is my calling. I have to do it. So I went and I spoke to my uh, program director, who's you know, this big doctor, head of the program and family medicine. And I said, Doc, I, I, I love this program. I'm going to finish the year, I'm going to complete it successfully, but I need to go into psychiatry. It's, it's my passion. And, and he was great about it. He said, Dom, I respect you. I don't know why you'd want to go into psychiatry. <laughs> But it's your calling and go for it. So I finished a successful family medicine intern year, and then I started a psychiatry residency, which is four years, and and then two years of child and adolescent training to get fellowship board certified and child. Wow. And um, yeah, and and along the same lines, I I was so fascinated with behavioral health at that point. Like I was so, it was like, oh, I'm in the right place. This is it. I felt so good.
0: What did it feel like? Because I ask people that a lot of the time when you find your calling, what did it like feel like in your body, in your soul? How did you know?
1: It was effortless. It went from, oh man. And I don't know if your listeners play sports or play music. Or, it's, and not, I'm not a golfer. I don't even know why I'm about to say this. I
0: love golfing.
1: But, but, the, but the, what I'm going to say is sometimes you hit that golf ball and it goes the furthest when you feel like you didn't even do anything. It just goes, and it just goes. You're like, I didn't even try. But when you're struggling and you're holding the stick, you're right. the club. Yeah, so I'm calling it a stick, right? That's that's how much of a golfer I am. (laughs) But that's my point. My point is that it feels effortless. You just feel light and you feel like you're in the right place, you know? And look, it's still challenging. But there's that, you know, there's that wonder. You know, you get that wonder, that, that excitement of wonder, like you were when you were a child, right? When something was fascinating for you as a kid, when you looked up at the stars or saw a cool bug on the floor, whatever, you know, that's how I was with psychiatry. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, when you see like patients that are going through various pathologies, but in all honesty, Lauren, I think it was because I dealt with it. You know, I dealt with so much of it. And, um, you know, I try to be unbiased and objective and a good physician and a good medical doc and make, you know, appropriate diagnoses and try and keep my personal life out of it. But I even think that some psychiatrists don't get it. I think that, Psychiatry is practiced like medicine sometimes. Yeah, where where it's like I'm depressed, so take a pill and you'll feel better. Call me in two weeks, you know, and that's not it.
0: Yeah, so much to break down from what you just said. One thing I definitely want to point out is the fact that you took a leap for yourself, despite the cultural challenges, despite the actual challenges of taking on. It was what six more years of school. Because you felt so compelled with something in your heart calling you, beckoning, knocking at the door, saying, hey, you need to follow this. This is your purpose. A lot of people hear that knock and they don't answer it. What would be your advice to somebody who's in the midst of hearing that knock right now and deciding whether or not they're going to open the door? How can they take that step?
1: I think one of the most powerful things that someone told me was, and this was even when I was doing medical school. I actually went to medical school late. I'm going to date myself. I didn't go to medical school until I was 30, right? So I was, I was an old guy.
0: That's amazing. How You look like I'm you're 30 you. now. I'm not How telling old you. How you. you? What the heck?
1: not telling you. You probably look it up. It's probably somewhere on the internet. But um, I went to medical school when I was 30. I was turning 30. And I was hesitant to even do that, even though I wanted to be a physician. But someone told me, they said, they said Dom, you're going to be 40 either way you might as well be 40 and be a doctor.
0: That's such good advice. And I was
1: like, oh my God. And it hit me. I was like, they're right. Like we're, we're not stopping time. You're going to age and time is going to go no matter what. You might as well do what you love, do what you love. And, and the truth is that four years of medical school and six years of training, if you're doing what you love, and I know this is cliche, but there's so much weight behind this. I enjoyed every second of it. And if I was a used car salesman or not, nothing against used car salesman, but if I was something else, maybe I would have been that Henry David Thoreau, man lives in quiet desperation guy, <laughs> you know, and just is living an unfulfilled life. And uh, I can't do that. So I, that's the advice that I give. Don't live quiet desperation, you know, chase those dreams. And, and you know what else, Lauren, too? I, sometimes I think I'm kind of a Debbie Downer with my friends, but I'm not trying to be because I work at a medical hospital, I see people often at the end of their lives Mm -hmm. and um, very terminally ill, terminally ill and sick. And, and I see that life is finite that, you know, none of us are getting out of this alive. And I know that sounds like, Oh my God, dude, shut up. We're, you know, we just want to go watch TV.
0: No, it's so important to remember that because if you forget that we're going to die, you forget to live.
1: There you go. It
0: robs us of our life.
1: There you go. You know I'm a big fan of Alan Watts. You know his philosophies, and uh, you know some of the most profound stuff that I've learned from him is that thinking about death is probably one of the most important things you could do to live a good life. Right? It's that whole memento mori thing. As morbid as that sounds, I think it's important.
0: What would you say is the top lesson, or like the repeated lesson you see from people who are on their deathbed? Like, what's the one thing that they say over and over again?
1: Oh yeah, I know, and I take this to heart, and I really, really listen. Part of my job, to put it in context, New Jersey, at this point, I'm from New Jersey, um, we do have a Death with Dignity Act, and, and people can you know, decide to end their life if they're terminal. Oh, wow. And sometimes as a psychiatrist, I, I'll be called on to see if they have the mental capacity to make that decision, right? So we have these very, very deep conversations. So I see people kind of at the end. Um, I also see people that are diagnosed with terminal illness and need psychiatric care for the grief that, that's going on with that you know, in their own life. So to put it into context, I do spend a lot of time with individuals in these positions. And what I've personally taken from it is that, and again, cliche, but you know what? Let it sink in because it is as real as real gets. They never, ever talk about money. They never talk about their bank accounts. They never talk about the kind of car they drove. They talk about family. They talk about memories with their family. They talk about their children and how proud they are of their kids. They talk about memories that they've had with their families and friends and good times and the things that they felt that they left in the world that was positive and, and how their legacy is going to live on somehow either through their children or through their work. Never is it a material thing. Never is it a status thing. And again, we have to remind ourselves that because I think ingrained in humanity and culture, I think we still have that the man with the most toys at the end wins. And that's not true. And this whole idea of a finish line of some sort, you know, and changing that perspective that there's no finish line. There's no finish line. We're not trying to get somewhere. It's silly because by the time you get there, you go, wait a minute, it was supposed to be a fun race the whole time. And I was worried about the damn finish line. So just those thoughts, right? That, that it's, mm. it's now, it's now. And again, Alan Watts, I use Alan Watts again because, and I wanna plagiarize it, I wanna say his name, Alan Watts is a great philosopher. He says, life is like listening to a song. You enjoy it while it's playing, right? You're, you're enjoying it, like the music, you're listening to every note. You're not waiting for that final crashing chord. You wanna replay it. When it's done, you're like, oh, let me hear that again. It touched me, it moved me. If you could think of your life as that, as listening to a song or dancing a dance, it's while it's happening. It's all the notes that are happening at the time. It's not, it's not the end. You don't judge a song once it's over. It's while it's happening, right? So those are my, I don't know, two cents, words of wisdom, whatever they are. I don't know.
0: Those are good cents. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, okay. I'm fascinated by the fact that you didn't go to med school until you were 30. Hmm. What was going on up until 30?
1: Oh, it's even better. It's even well, better, better, worse. I don't know. I wasn't a great student, Lauren. I was, I was, uh, my high school guidance counselor told me that I'm not college material, first of all. And I was like, oh, bummer.
0: So did you take that to heart? And then,
1: oh, of course I did. Oh. Of course I did. I was like, that sucks. You know, I'm not college material. Yeah. Because I didn't get when in high school, I just, you know, I went to class and I didn't pay attention and I just got by on, on what I remembered from class, I didn't study. I was a terrible student. And, but I got my past, everything, you know?
0: How do you get that guy's voice out of your head when you're going to do something academic like med school?
1: Because no one knows me the way I know me. And that's the voice that overcomes that. Because that's what happened, is I was like, I am fascinated by the human body and by neurology and neuroscience. And I want to learn it. And I can be a doctor. I know I can be a great doctor. My God's counselor said I'm not college material my pre-med advisor said, I'll never get into medical school. Like, eh, I don't know. Are they right? Am I going to listen to them? And no, I didn't listen to them, thankfully. And when I really wanted it, when I knew that I had to do what I had to do, I got the grades and I did a master's program. And it's like a no give up attitude. Do you know that I applied to 100 medical schools the first time around? I got 100 rejection letters. And of course, there was a part of me that was like, wow, okay, I guess they're right. You know, but then I said, nope, 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 they're not right. I could be a great doctor. They're not right. And uh, I said, what do I have to do? You know, and and I went and got a master's degree in, in um molecular biology, biology. And uh I loved science and 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 I did well. I got like I got like a three eight or three nine or something. So I did well. And then I reapplied to medical schools and I and only got like two interviews and I got put on a wait list and I didn't get in again. So this is this is number two. This is the second try, right? So this is like a little perseverance story for everybody that gets knocked on their butt and you got to keep going. So now I don't get in the second time I got interviews though, but I didn't get in. And now I was, Oh, I was devastated. What am I going to do? Take another year. Cause if you don't get in, you have to wait another year. So I'm like thinking, and I'm like, I got my graduate degree. I did really well, but my undergrad was like, ah, eh, you know, it was like three point nothing, you know, but my graduate degree was great. Yeah. And, uh, I said, what do I have to do? So now I started getting creative and and I found some friends who were medical students at the time. And I said, what is the hardest medical school class that you're in? What's the hardest one? Just tell me what it is. And they're like, oh, Dom, it's biochemistry that kills everybody. Medical school biochemistry is nasty. Everybody fails it. It's terrible. I said, okay, this is my plan. I'm going to just go to a university and I'm going to take a graduate level biochemistry course, non-matric. I'm not going for a degree. I already have a master's. And I just enrolled in the hardest biochemistry course I could. <laughs> and, and I busted my butt and I aced it, right? So I, I killed myself with this course. So then I reapplied to medical school and I got one interview. And I got the interview and they said, wow, Dominic, you know, you, you applied last year and you got waitlisted and you kind of died on the waitlist. You're reapplying now. I saw that you took a biochemistry course. and You did really well. And he said, well, now what? What if you don't get in this time? And it was so different. I was just so confident at that point because I knew what I wanted. I looked at the interviewer and I said, I said, that's so easy. If you guys don't let me in this time, I'm going to find another way to prove my worth and I'm just going to reapply next year. And that was it. And then, you know, a couple weeks later I got an acceptance letter and I went to med school.
0: Wow. So
1: yeah, But, but the coolest thing is, is that once I was in medical school, I did really well. So that, that, like flies in the face of everybody and everything and self doubt and people saying you're not college material and you'll never get to med school. I honored medical school, right? So I was in medical school with kids that went to Ivy league schools that had a 4.0 and were failing out of med school. And I was tutoring them just because I was so passionate about, I just, I was so happy. And not only that, I think I appreciated it.
0: Oh my God. I was
1: like, Oh my God, you know, like I'm here, I made it. So I wasn't letting this slide, you know? So that's that story of kind of persevere. And so yeah, for listeners out there, please, God, don't give up on your dreams.
0: Yeah. So many things come to mind when you tell me this. I mean, obviously you're what the kids would call resilient AF. um, And I definitely want to get your tips for resilience, but it also stubborn Italian. (laughs) I was going to say that. So one of my mentors (laughs) once said to me, like when I was like, in a moment of, oh my God, I don't know how much longer I could do this. The entertainment industry is so brutal. My heart's broken all the time. He's like, Well, this is a great thing about Italian, because he's Italian too. Because This is a great thing about Italians.
1: We're too stupid to quit. Yeah. <laughs> that could be, you know, that definitely could be. I mean,
0: I, I love it. I, when I first moved to LA, my dad was asking me, Like, well, Lauren, how long are you going to keep going at this? I'm like, I don't care if it takes till I'm 80, Dad. I will never give up. Yeah. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing. But a lot of people don't have that natural resilience and willingness to pick themselves back up. Or maybe they have the willingness, but they just don't know how. So I'm curious if you have any tips on how to build resilience.
1: Oh, wow. Resilience is easy when you're doing what you love and what you believe. It still hurts. You get knocked down and that stings. But it's easy when you, when you have that drive, when you have that passion for what you do and then look I don't want to say it's easy you know it's hard but it's easier now I started just to go back on a backtrack a little bit I had forgive me mom I had the crazy mom that used to take me on auditions when I was like eight years old in New York City and like acting classes and so my whole life was being told no like you know you're in the industry it's like you had callbacks and auditions and your whole life is like no 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 right And when I'm told no, it's not like I'm trying to get revenge. And you have to be careful with that. Mm. If if someone says, no, you're not good enough, or we don't need you, or you're not not medical student material, you're not going to be a good doctor, you're not whatever. Some people become angry and they say, I'll show you. And then it becomes this drive to prove something and you lose sight. I think you truly lose sight. So I don't think motivation should be fueled by anger or motivation should be fueled by trying to prove something to your parents or to your siblings or to your spouse or to your kids or whoever. I tried to make sure that that motivating force for me was always, I'm listening to people tell me who they think that I am, which is the strangest thing because who knows me better than me? right? How could someone else possibly tell me that I'm not going to be a good doctor? Like That's the craziest thing. I know that I'm going to be great at it because I love it. How, how could somebody tell me that I won't be good college material? Like I want to learn. Listen, people know themselves. So go with what you feel inside and don't be resilient out of anger. Don't try and prove anything because that comes back to bite you. Mm-hmm. It's about you. you know. It's, it's, it's this sort of like foundation of comfort in who you are and knowing what you're meant to be and what you're meant to do. And you just keep your eye on it and just keep moving forward. And I think a really important thing here we talked about being put in boxes, right? So it's like, okay, apply to med school, get a rejection, you're not going, um, whatever. You have to think outside the box. Like, I had to, if I didn't say, maybe if I take the hardest medical school course and bust my butt, maybe that'll impress somebody, right?
0: You were creative in your approach to med school. Yeah. And
1: you can't be afraid to do those things. See, people are afraid. They're like, well, that's weird. That's crazy. Get this. I was told that I would never get an interview at a certain med school because it was like really hard to get into. So I was like, I wonder if anybody just like calls the Dean. Like that's crazy, right? Like my friends are like, are you crazy? You can't call the Dean. Like, who are you? You're just like some undergrad. I called the dean's office and I said, can I have an interview, please? I just want to meet you. You know, I'm going to be applying to your school. And the secretary was like, sure, can you come in tomorrow? And I was like, oh, my God, right? So I went and I sat down with the dean and I had brought all my stuff. And I'm like, this, these are my grades. I really want to come to your school. So now I'm not some nameless, faceless thing on an application. But no one thinks to do that. They're afraid of that right? They're afraid of that. Why not try? I mean, the worst thing the secretary could said, oh yeah, no, 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 you can't get in.
0: Yeah. And then you're in the same place you were yesterday, but except they've actually heard your name now, even if they didn't meet with you, they've heard your name. Right?
1: <laughs> oh, it's that guy calling. Oh no. Um, but now that I'm through medical school and I'm a physician and I'm a, you know, an attending physician at a hospital and, and working, I see now in retrospect that there's so many other ways, so many other ways to get to this place. Um, whether it's foreign medical schools or, you know, training somewhere, whatever. I mean, there's so many other ways. If you want to do something, I know we're focusing on medicine, but I don't care if it's being a musician or an artist or whatever, whatever, you know, it's just, just keep pushing.
0: Yeah. That's kind of what I call making creativity the filter for your life. Like it doesn't just show up when you're playing a song or when you're doing a play. It's in everything you do. And it's really, I think the key factor between those who achieve what they want to And those that stay in the sidelines, you have to have a creative approach. Not only is it going to help you get there more quickly, but it's just going to make it more fun too. So I do want to talk about the different things you do because you have so many different aspects to your life and career. So like, was music always a thing? When did this come into the picture and what role does it serve in your life now?
1: Music to me was mystical it was something that touched me personally in a way that I wasn't sure that it did the same for other people. But when I was an adolescent, you know, when I was a kid, even eight, nine, 10 years old, I was so anxious. I mean, I was so I had like OCD and I was worried about everything. And, and then that kind of, as I said, went into like a severe depression. I remember now I'm going to date myself. I had a Sony, I had that yellow Sony cassette player sport. I'm old. And, um, And I remember holding a tape of Boston, a cassette of the band Boston. And what would make me feel better when I was depressed was I would play this song more than a feeling from Boston. And I would hear Brad Delp's voice and I would hear Tom Schultz on the guitar. And it transcended me. It Like in my soul, like I was like swimming in this sound and I was like, it it made me smile and it made me feel good and it gave me hope, right? Now, I mean, we can all say that, right? We put on a good song and we, we feel good. But I mean, it was so profound in my life. And I was like, I need to know how to make this. How do you make this? And that's when I started taking guitar lessons.
0: And what age was that?
1: Like 14. Oh, wow. So I started taking guitar lessons. And, and you know, my, my mentor was Tom Schultz, you know, from Boston. And uh, and I bought like all the little gadgets to make my guitar sound like Tom Schultz. <laughs> um, but then what I found was as I was playing, you know this as a as a singer, right? I mean, just you lose yourself in it. You lose yourself in it. And it's life altering. Now, when I was in psychiatric training, I did research in the, the mystical experience or the peak experience. And you have all these psychologists like Maslow and all these guys, even Freud and Carl Jung and all these guys that, that talked about the human peak experience, but it's called the mystical experience. So I, I, I did a lot of research into that. And, and to me, music and art Brings about this mystical sort of quality. And I even printed this out because I'm dying to talk this about you. So, oh, please tell me. Yeah. yeah. So, so check this out, right? Mystical sounds kind of goofy, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like we're doing like horoscopes or something?
0: I mean, I love the woo woo stuff, <laughs> Dr. D. So you're, you, you got me there, but.
1: Well, that's, that's my point is that it's not woo, right? So, the mystical experience is four things it's, it's a noetic quality. So, when you experience something mystical, you feel as though that you learn something like a state of knowing and, and you don't really know what it means, but you just feel like you came away from it, like learning something, whether it's about yourself or about, about life. Right. Number two is it's ineffable. It's hard to put into words. I'm even having trouble right now putting it into words. Right. It's, it's ineffable. Like the Tom Schultz, Boston thing. I can't explain it. Right. It, I, I don't even know what words it was a feeling. It's transient. It's kind of comes and goes with that situation. And it's not really conscious control. Like it just sort of happens, you know, it just sort of happens with that stimulus and that's a mystical experience by scientific definition. And, and I think that music gives that to me or any art for that matter gives that to me because ineffable, I think is a very powerful word. Isn't that funny? It's like, a, it's a word that means you can't say a word. I don't know. It's, <laughs> that's weird, but it's a powerful word because when you look at a piece of art Like you go to the Met or you go to the Louvre or something and and you look at something and it just, you get sucked into it. How do you explain that? Where like a picture a photograph or a song kind of just warms your heart. Like, how do you explain that? You know?
0: Yeah. And I'm curious for you, like both just as a human and then what you've observed in your patients, like what role do you think creativity does play in mental health?
1: I think it's everything. I think it's that wonder that we've lost. A lot of my patients that have severe depression, and depression is terrible, you know, depression is real, and it's terrible. I can speak firsthand from that. It's not just being down, you know, it's it's your mind just shuts down, and there's nothing. And you're in just this deep, dark hole. But if if you can be creative and start thinking that there's more to this, that there is hope, that there is a future, that there is life outside of this storm that you're right in the middle of and trying to figure out what in that individual lights that fire, right? Like for me, it was music and art, but for someone else, it could be, it could be anything. So using that creative process to really have that discussion about what drives you, what lights that fire. I I find it sad that, you know, as we get older, we kind of lose that. Don't we? Like, I think we become cynical or a lot of people become cynical. You know, you get in the rat race and keeping up with the Joneses and you kind of, you lose wonder. But in the meantime, in the meantime, you look up at the stars and you're like, wait a sec, like stop for a second. Like when you were a kid, like, whoa, stop for a second. Like you realize that your heart's beating 80 times per minute and you're not doing any, you're like, why is that happening? Do you, are you controlling that? You're breathing. Your, your thyroid gland is pumping out T4 and T3. Your adrenal glands are paying attention. To what's happening. Your food is digesting, getting turned into energy. Are you doing any of that? That's amazing! Like, how is that happening? You know, you know that you exist. You're alive. You know, you have eyes. You're interpreting things. Like, how do people not even talk about that? It's like you just go to work. I go to work. I sit in traffic. I come home. I eat my dinner. Like, but wait a second! Stop. There's wonder and there's beauty and there's creativity and, but to kind of get back to that, when people are struggling with with mental illness, especially like depression or anxiety, I think it's really important to not lose sight of that creativity and wonder that we all have in us. You know
0: you know obviously you do work with medicine and a lot of people one of the hallmarks of this show is talking about mental health because I think that's so related to everything we do especially if we're creative and you know living a creative life if somebody is in a position where like they've been toying with wanting to try medication but they're not sure like what's like a good first place to start
1: yeah for sure and and like I said before I think I don't appreciate when psychiatry is treated like internal medicine. You know, if you show up at your doctor's office and you say you're depressed and they write you a script without even talking to you, I mean, that's kind of silly because psychotherapy I think is frontline, you know, you have to, you have to get good psychotherapy.
0: Is that, so you would do that number one. And then if that doesn't work, then go to psychiatry. Yeah,
1: It depends. You know, it really depends. Now, this is my analogy. If listeners have listened to my podcast or other stuff, they might get sick of hearing this, but I think it's relevant. Medicine is this, right? So let's just say that your goal is to learn how to ride a bicycle. And let's just say that learning how to ride a bicycle is gaining independence and mental health and being good again. You know, that's your goal. Taking a medicine like an antidepressant is like making sure that there's air in the tires of that bike, right? It doesn't teach you how to ride the bike, but it makes sure that there's air in the tires, right? So when there's air in the tires, it's easier to ride the bike. It's easier to learn how to ride the bike. It's easier to go up hills. It's either easier to go down hills. It's easier to go over bumps. So it makes the process easier but it doesn't teach you how to ride the bike. So there's no medicine that is going to teach you how to ride a bike. There's no medicine that is just going to suddenly make your life awesome. The medicine will help your therapy. The medicine will help get you out of bed and get you going to the gym again. The medicine will help open you up and maybe get you some insight and to think through some things. But that's, that's in my opinion, after all these years of being a psychiatrist, that's sort of where medicine falls in line with With like anxiety and depression. Now, don't forget in mental health, I mean, we do deal with some very significant mental health issues like schizophrenia and psychosis and and severe bipolar disorder. And in those cases, you really do need medicine because those mental illnesses are a little bit different in the sense that they're very organic. Like someone can be manic and you give them a medicine and it brings them right down and and kind of gets them back on track. And that's different. I mean, that's a little bit different. Or people that are hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there, there are medicines that can kind of make that go away, thankfully. But you know, but run-of-the-mill sort of depression, anxiety the people that are resistant of like you know going to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist—I think there is a place for medicine in that respect. But you know, I would always say, diet, exercise, activity, taking care of yourself, and and a good therapist. And don't forget, for people that have tried therapy, the average is three therapists before somebody really gets a good rapport with somebody. <sighs>
0: It is like dating. It is like dating. It took (laughs) me four to find the one. Jessica, I love you. Yeah, I'm never leaving.
1: But what's important about that point is don't give up again. I mean, you got to have some resilience there because people see two therapists like this is terrible. You know, you might hit it on the first one, but you know, eventually you'll find a good therapist that you click with. And honestly, it's priceless to have four walls of confidential talking and, you know, having people mirror stuff back to you objectively. That's not your family. They're not biased. They're not judging you. It's a big deal.
0: I'm curious about your spirituality because obviously we've spoken about the mysticism, right? Mm. I I know it's not like woo-woo mysticism, but I like to think it's a little bit like that. (laughs) I'm assuming you were raised Roman Catholic just because, you know, most of us in this culture are. I'm wondering what your spiritual practice is like now and how you incorporate that into your creative life.
1: Yeah, so you're right. You hit the nail on the head. I was, you know, Catholic and I I was scared to death of going to hell and purgatory and all that scary stuff. Great times. I went to the Vatican. I actually saw the Pope speak. Yeah, not, nothing against Roman Catholicism and Catholicism and nothing against any religion for that matter. I think it certainly serves a purpose in a lot of ways. But me personally, and again, it's a very personal thing, I've come to realize a very simple truth that I'd be crazy to think that I'm the center of the universe, you know, mm. that there, there's something bigger and better out there than me for sure. I don't know what it is, and I don't know that I'm supposed to know what it is, but I respect it, and I think it's amazing, and I love it, and uh, I don't take it lightly. So I think if anything, I'm probably more into sort of the Buddhist sort of philosophy, very loosely, you know, Zen, Buddhism, you know, most of the Eastern sort of philosophies. And that helps me, because otherwise you have an existential crisis on your hands, because it's got to be very hard to be an atheist, it's gotta be hard. You know, I, I don't, I couldn't do it. It's gotta be tough. I, I don't know because
0: it's a big burden. I I have a a dear friend who's an atheist and honestly, she lives her life more Christian than most Christians I know, but like Mm. she has a a tremendously difficult time carrying the burden of life. And it's the only thing that makes sense to her, but I really don't envy it because it just Mm -hmm. seems treacherous.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, though, I respect everybody. I respect everyone's beliefs and and that's great. That's awesome. That's cool. You know, if that works for you and if that's truly what you think and feel, then go with it. But personally, for me, I feel like it would be ignorant to just assume that there's absolutely no. I don't know enough. We don't know enough. We don't, we're like, what? You know, that old analogy is like taking a shot glass in the ocean and, and going like this and going, Well, I guess whales don't exist, <laughs> right? Like, how, how, there's no way Wait, you I can was just know picturing how-
0: you doing that though, and then a whale was on top of the shot glass, <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: oh, <laughs> right, like there's so much we don't know, so how could you just assume, yeah, right? How could you just assume, you know? And some people have the structured religions, which is awesome, that's great, yeah,
0: whatever works. I mean, for me creativity and spirituality are interconnected like i can't delineate one from the other they're they're like lovers yeah so okay i want to talk about all the things you do we've gone over the fact that you're a musician you're a psychiatrist both for adult and children. You're also an actor. We did talk about that a little bit in your childhood. You're also own part ownership in a production company. You also are a podcaster and a media personality. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this. When I saw your profile, I was like, I have to have a mom because he is doing everything that I believe in, which is being everything that you are. But a lot of times when you're all those things, when you're all the things that you really are, people take issue with it. Mm-hmm. And so- I know that you've said, you know, I've got to go against grain. I've got to be myself. That's great. But what do you do when you do come up against somebody who says, well, what do you really do though? How do you handle that?
1: Um, I I wonder why they're asking, you know, I, 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 right. If you, again, if you're doing what you're enjoying and love, I mean, it's like, that's their problem. Does that sound mean? I don't mean to sound mean, No, I
0: mean, it's, it's very evolved
1: almost in a, in a a (laughs) realistic, in a realistic way. If someone's like, well, you know, you do all your jack of all trades, master of none. Like, what do you even do? Hey man, I'm, I'm living my life and doing the best I can. I, I don't know even why you're asking or what that means to you. Point is every single one of those things that I do, I love. I love it. I love it. You know, when I round at the hospital and I'm around my colleagues in medicine, I love it. I love it. I'm fascinated. And you know, when I work in the production of doing a new film and, and get to work with actors or we sign somebody really big, it's like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. When I get called to go on the doctors or or news media or any of the shows that I do, it's just, yes, let's talk to people. Let's get, let's break the stigma of of behavioral health and let's let's educate people and empower people. You know, if I get to play some live music. Then I'm playing some live music and it's all good, you know. and that's, that's it. I don't know that I identify with one, and I don't want to. Yeah. Right. Who wants to?
0: Boring.
1: Call me. Call me whatever you want. I, it doesn't matter. You know. That's kind of your thing. Like the person that's inquiring, right? That's their thing. But again, we're getting back to that whole discussion about like, why do you have to be in a box? You don't. And that's like the whole thing here. Funny, I'm sitting at my desk in my office. We have this thing called the DSM. It's like it diagnoses people, right? And you put people in little boxes, you know, major depressive disorder, recurrence severe without psychosis. You know, it's like we like to put things in boxes to make them more comfortable. You know what? I'm going to go on a limb here and say that the people that are so overly concerned with me or you or someone else doing so many different little things, I think that probably just makes them anxious, makes them nervous. They're like, oh my God, like, you know, is that what I have to do? Or why, do, why, don't, why don't they just do one thing, you know? makes them uncomfortable.
0: Or because they want to do many different things. I think it's more often than not a projection of like, who do you think you are that you can be all these things? Mm. Pick a lane, you know? And I just can't wait for everybody to open up their mind to the fact that we're everything.
1: And again, it's so crazy, right? Like we're totally coming full circle because I think one of the first things that we said when you asked me that, I was like, isn't everybody? It's like, everyone is everything. Oh, now we're getting real woo-woo. But everybody is everything. Yeah, and you can call yourself a doctor or a father or a brother or sister or a car salesman or I don't know entrepreneur. You can say whatever you. But those are words. It's a word. It's a label. What does that even matter? You know, what does that even matter in reality? And that's that's the truth, right? When it all comes down to it, it's a label.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your podcast. Oh. It's called Psych Unfiltered, right?
1: Yeah. So there you go, right? It's, it's like, why do you do all these things? Like it, it, was, it was a thought. It was like, hey, you know what? I have stuff to say and let's throw some stuff out there. And if it helps people and it resonates with people, then I go with it. You know, it's like no pressure. So I did a series of four um, episodes just talking. It's called uh, Psych Unfiltered with Dr. D., and I think what inspired me the most about that was still to this day, there's a lot of stigma with behavioral health and a lot of misunderstanding. And also, I, I wanted people to know that I've gone through a lot of stuff on my own too. I didn't want to be that doctor with a checklist in his hand being like, okay, you know, you're diagnosed with this. I, I, I know it. I've been there. You know, I've been there. I know what it's like to go through some of that stuff as far as behavioral health problems. So I just wanted to connect with an audience in that respect. And uh, I think education is empowerment. You know, and and if I could educate people, then awesome.
0: Beautiful. So one thing we talk about on this podcast a lot is fear and taking it out of the driver's seat. Like maybe it's going to be there, but you got to at least get it like shotgun or in the backseat or maybe in the trunk, maybe on the roof if you're feeling frisky. Hmm. What's your current relationship with fear and how do you work on taking it out of the driver's seat of your life?
1: So I look at fear as what it really is. Fear is real and it's normal, and it's healthy, and it's not something to be afraid of. Fear is important. So there's a disease that's very rare where people are born without the ability to feel pain. Okay? Mm. Guess how long they live? Not long. Not long. They don't live long. Why? Because if they get injured, they don't feel it, so they, they bleed. If their appendix bursts, they don't feel it so they die from infection. If they have any sort of thing wrong with their body, there's no warning system, so they die. Fear is a warning system. It's letting you know that you're uncomfortable with something because if we did not have fear, we wouldn't be here. If my ancestors, 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 ancestors were not afraid of the saber-toothed tiger, I don't even know if humans and saber-toothed tigers were around at the same time. I think but, they were. <laughs> I don't, maybe in like cartoons, like Flintstones or something. <laughs> but, you know, if, if my caveman ancestors were not afraid of the sounds in the forest, then I wouldn't be here, right? It protected them. So fear is necessary. It's like pain, it lets you know that something's wrong. It's like physical pain. The difference, though, is that we're so evolved that we've become fearful of things that are irrational. Mm. So it's probably a good idea to be afraid of poisonous snakes, but not so helpful to be afraid of public speaking or you know, leaving your house or afraid of getting behind the wheel of your car or whatever, right? And that's where the behavioral health component comes into it because that's when you can get help, you know, and you could say, well, is this fear irrational? There's something called cognitive behavioral therapy It's very helpful with that. It helps you look at your thoughts and emotions and really kind of see whether it's rational or not and and how to get through it. But the question is, how do I deal with fear? Well, I know that it's real and I know that it's necessary. But when it arises, I I say, okay, this, this is a good thing. My radar is beeping. Something's wrong. Is this necessary? So, okay, I'm afraid to give a presentation at work tomorrow. Hmm. Am I going to die if I get up and give a presentation? It's going to end my life in some way. If I start sweating or pass out or stutter my words, is that really bad? And you kind of say no, right? So that fear is a little irrational. So you kind of work yourself through it. That's hard to do and it takes a lot of practice. But I think you have to ask yourself, is it a rational fear? Is it something that's keeping me safe? And also don't forget fear and anxiety. You know, things happen to your body when you're anxious that help you. So if you're anxious, you know your heart rate increases, your visual acuity gets better, blood shifts to certain areas of your body for energy and things like that. So anxiety and nervousness can help you. It can help you get out of a bad situation. Mm. So there's a purpose for it and we wouldn't be around. Just think of the people that don't feel pain. They wouldn't live very long. And you know what? If you didn't feel fear, you wouldn't be around long either. You'd be jumping off cliffs saying, oh, I'll be okay.
0: <laughs> you, you know, uh, <laughs> very true. Just picturing myself jumping off a cliff is something I don't envision anytime soon. Uh, um, You know, you you mentioned earlier, we talked about finding a therapist or finding a psychiatrist. And the process is, you know, something that keeps a lot of people from engaging with this really helpful therapy. Mm -hmm. What are your tips to somebody who is looking to start that endeavor of finding a therapist or a psychiatrist and doesn't know where to start?
1: Yeah. I think fortunately or unfortunately, right? Like we're in the United States, so everything's insurance based and um, some people have the luxury of paying out of pocket, but you know, this, this dictates a lot, right? It dictates how you're going to pay for this. And you know, if you have insurance, I, I would say the first thing to do would be contact your insurance company and get a list and you could do this online. You know, you could go to like your website of your insurance company and you'll get a list of providers that are under your insurance plan. And at least you'll have some names now, and then you can call the offices and check them out. I think what confuses people tremendously though, is all the overlap with behavioral health providers. It's like, what is a psychiatrist? What is a psychologist? What is a social worker? What is a therapist? What is this? Right. No one knows, but you know, when people are confused and scared, it just makes it more daunting. Right. Uh, So I would say that, you know, the first step would be a psychotherapist and a psychotherapist could be anybody with a, a master's level, you know, like a, like a clinical master's in social work or a master's in clinical therapy, licensed clinical therapist, to a PhD, which is a doctorate program, or a PsyD, which is a doctorate program. And then you have medical docs who specialize in psychiatry like myself. You know, you have some, some confusion there. But I think if you go to a website and look at your insurance or you go online and look for somebody, you, you want a therapist, you want a psychotherapist. And, and honestly, the most tried and true methods that I've seen are cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm. So that's kind of what you want to look for. ACT, CBT. Those are the kind of things that, you know, people that are trained in that tend to help people a lot with sort of like the anxiety, depression, lifestyle stuff.
0: What do you think of EMDR?
1: Yeah. EMDR uh, movement, the eye movement uh, desensitization. That's actually tried and true, you know, for people with trauma, it really helps. And that's where we start to understand that connection of the body and mind. And, that's the cool thing about studying neurology and psychiatry is we know what we feel, right? I mean, like I'm sad or I'm anxious or whatever, but we don't really understand how complex the brain is. And, and when you start learning about this stuff and you go, oh my goodness, this is how the brain works. And this is, these are the tracks, the nervous system tracks. And these are the parts of the brain that are lighting up when you feel a certain way. It's just fascinating stuff. So EMDR kind of falls into that category where you're actually using neurology to help people get over their, their trauma. Mm-hmm. So it does work. Yeah, it's it's real deal.
0: So Dr. do you mention that you dealt with depression and anxiety when you were younger. I'm wondering what some of the signs were when you were going through that and how did you end up coming out on the other side of it?
1: So yeah, when, when we look at depression now, it's like, oh my God, it's major depression. You were depressed because you kind of checked all those boxes. But But subjectively feeling it as a young adult, especially as we talked about in a culture that didn't really know what it was or accept it, the feeling, the best way that I can describe major depression is that the entire world, or you think anyway, that the entire world is living in this beautiful technicolor and you're living in a dark black and white photograph and you don't know why. And that's the scariest part, not knowing why, because you say, I have a good family. I, there's meals on the table every night. I have a nice warm bed. I, you know, I have friends. I, what the heck is going on here? Why is the world dark? So that's what it felt like. And, you know, I kind of struggled with that and anxiety for probably years, you know, it wasn't until I was like 18 when I, I said to my parents, I said, you know, I think I need to talk to somebody. And, uh, and that's where it started. You know, that's where it started. I, I got help and I started talking to somebody. And I think the biggest relief, because the entire time you're experiencing this stuff, you're questioning everything. You're like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not like everyone else? And it's a terrible feeling. Um, but if anything, I, I want everyone to know that that is not it. That is not life. And that is temporary. And you will get through that. You know, I still, listen, I still have some pretty down times, you know, where I kind of go back and I I revisit that place every now and then. But this is kind of the way I look at it. Have you ever been in in like a really nasty storm? Mm -hmm. Like it's dark and it's raining and it's like windy. It's really hard to remember what the sun looks like when you're in the middle of a really nasty storm. Like you can try. And I think people with depression forget completely. But you learn to remember like this storm's gonna pass, the sun will come out again. So yeah, that's what it felt like for me. I don't know if that's what it feels like for everybody. Um, I certainly know what the DSM five criteria are because I treat people with it and I, <laughs> I help people with it. But that that was my subject, you know, my subjective experience with it for sure.
0: And I'm sure it just makes you so much better at your job having gone through that and being able to relate to someone that way and not having to rely on a book to tell you, to have that empathy for somebody else. Um, I really respect the fact that you share that. It's really wonderful to see a doctor who's not afraid to also get vulnerable.
1: It's important. I think it's important. We have to be who we are.
0: So I know you said you did talk therapy. Did you also do any medication? What was your journey like with that? if there was one.
1: Yeah, and you're ready for this. Let's let's break the stigma and and I'm not ashamed to say absolutely. Yeah, I was I was put on antidepressants, you know, when I was 18. Back then, I think it was like, you know, like Prozac or like one of those 1980s antidepressants. But again, man, what a learning experience, right? You know, they were helpful and they helped me get out of that dark storm, but I truly believe that, you know, psychotherapy, talking to someone and working through it and understanding yourself a little bit better and that was sort of the the work that that got me through it. Mm. But yeah, no shame. They help people, you know. So Yeah.
0: You know, I know some people who have gotten on it, gotten off it, or some people who are just, you know, on it long term. Can it be temporary? Is that healthy?
1: Absolutely. Definitely, definitely. And and again, I'm pretty conservative with meds, so I don't think it's a good idea to jump to meds necessarily first line, but if you do need it, you know, they're effective. But I you know, people do not need to be on medicines forever. And as a medical doc, we obviously do Research and epidemiologic studies that try and guide us into how long someone should be on it. So we do have like an algorithm that we we follow, a medical algorithm that, you know. And here's a quick example: if someone has a first episode of severe depression and they've never had anything like that before, then you know we think four to six months is probably the best time frame, as per our studies. You know, when you look at studies of people getting better, and you know going into remission from depression Mm, or- I
0: like that you call it remission. I've never heard anybody say that.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. You go into remission or or, or it resolves, you know. Um, But usually four to six months is sort of that goal where you you really need to see if the medicines are going to work. When people have multiple episodes of depression throughout their life, you know, it could be longer. It could be a year or two, you know, to make sure someone's stable. If someone was ever suicidal, that kind of raises the bar a little bit, you know, because that's safety now. So you might be on a little longer term. But don't forget, we're learning how to ride the bike, as I said, right? When you're on the medicine, you're going to therapy, you're getting better at riding the bike. We're evolving and we're learning about ourselves. So it's not like you're damaged and you need to be on this medicine forever. I hate when people use psychiatric medicine and they go, well, it's like if you had diabetes and you're taking insulin. No, it's not it. It's not it. You know, your, your pancreas is screwed up. It won't make insulin. So you need to take insulin. That's not the case with psychiatric medicine. Psychiatric medicines help you right but you're getting better you're evolving you're learning more about yourself you're going to therapy right so you might not need it forever that's that's the that's the important thing
0: that's empowering you know because i think people people say that thing about the insulin because they want to make people feel better and destigmatize it right they're trying to like you know draw a parallel that would make someone more comfortable but i feel like the point you just brought up is so empowering because If you just say it's something that, you know, is a physical thing, you're taking away the good work you're doing maybe in therapy or doing self-development work or whatever it is that's also helping you get better. So I I love that idea that it's a tool, but you are also using other tools to bring yourself out of whatever you're going through.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I get it. I get why they make that analogy. And we know that you take a medicine, increases serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine and all these fancy neurochemicals and all that stuff. And we know that, right? And that's true. And it does help our mood, but you're getting better too. You're living your life. Your relationships might be improving. Your job might be improving. You might be just getting stronger, more resilient day-to-day by getting through the challenging times. So, so you're changing and evolving significantly mm-hmm. while that medicine is helping you. So you don't have to be on the medicine forever.
0: Well, I have one final question for you, Dr. D. I want to go back to little Dom going on his little auditions, you know, hustling around town, having a little anxiety, but not knowing what to do with it. And I really believe that creativity is deeply connected to the inner child. And like you said earlier, you know, I think a lot of people get in these states of loss of wonder because we're not honoring our little selves and being true to that little person. So anyway. If you and little Dom were standing in the same room and he was looking at you and you were looking at him, what do you think little you would say to you now and why?
1: So that little guy would look at me. Does he know that it's me? Does he know He's that- been <sighs> He's been informed. He's been informed. Well, I love these deep questions. Um, I think that he would go, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that you could do it. You're doing it because back then I was so anxious and scared that at that point in my life, there were so many barriers and so much fear and I was just trying to get through another day. So seeing someone grown up and quote on you know, living a good life and following his dreams, you know, I think little Don would go, wow, you know, you did it. You made it. You survived this craziness. Yeah, I think you'd be pretty surprised.
0: And what would you say to him and why?
1: Oh, and that's the old wise man that you never pay attention to. <laughs> um, you know what I would just say? I would just say, keep pushing. You got this. I'm not going to break this down into into some formula. Just Just keep pushing and follow your heart. And you got this.
0: Well, Dr. D, you do got this. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a pleasure. I'm so inspired by your journey, by your path by your commitment to yourself and to your dreams and by your resilience. And you're just proof that if you have a dream and you keep your eyes on the prize and you remember that your own internal knowing is far greater than what any other outside impetus could tell you, anything is possible and you can create beautiful, great things. Hmm. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And
1: oh, you're, you're so welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. And, and, you know, just to, quickly add to that I think humility is a very important thing because it's like as we're talking about this stuff and it's kind of like when you ask me that question about you know what would I say to myself as a kid and all that and it's I get this almost feeling like I'm like this successful person that you know achieved all this stuff and I just I want you to know and I want the listeners to know that it truly is a journey and I don't consider myself like successful or you know I'm still living it I'm in the middle of the song
0: I totally get that and and I feel the same way too. I mean, but at the same time you do have to acknowledge you've achieved quite a bit and done things that I've never met anyone else who's done these things. You're the first medical doctor I've had on the show who also is a brilliant musician, who also is an actor, a producer, a podcast host, does media appearances, you're a father, a husband, like You're doing everything that's on your heart's desires. And maybe you're not doing them all to like the fullest extent that you want to yet. But like you said, it's a journey. And I think if you had achieved everything at this point, you'd be bored.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just so such kind words. Thank you so much for saying that. But it's that same thing. What do you want to be when you grow up? I think someone could ask me that right now. And I don't know what I tell them.
0: I think that's so exciting because there's dreams you find on the way to your dreams. And sometimes they're more powerful than your original intention.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: Bam, preaching to the choir. (laughs) All right, Dr. D, well, I appreciate you. You're awesome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Let's do it again sometime.
0: Thank you so much for listening and thanks to my guest, Dr. Dominic Sportelli. For more info on Dr. D, follow him at Dr. Sportelli on Instagram and check out his podcast, Psych Unfiltered, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Thank you so much to Unleash associate producer, Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. Remember to pre-save my song, Therapy, at the link in the show notes or in my Instagram bio. It's out this Friday, May 7th. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and add on Lee Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Dr. D at Dr. Sportelli so he can share too. My wish for you this week is that you do what's right for you in your career, your passions, and especially your mental health, because Dr. Dom is right. No one can ever know you better than you know yourself. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.